It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We start with the dueling rulings, the fallout of the conflicted judges' rulings ahead of the weekend on the abortion medication Mifepristone. The two rulings issued Friday night have set up what is widely expected to be a showdown in the Supreme Court. Attorney General Merrick Garland has already appealed the Texas ruling. Alexis McGill is CEO of the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. How is it that one person, one judge with no medical degree, no science degree, can make a decision about a drug that has been used, that has been safe, and proven effective. But of course, that ruling from the Texas judge was almost immediately contradicted by a Democratic appointed judge in Washington state affirming the FDA's approval of Mifepristone, blocking the government from restricting access. There are a lot of questions about what is going to happen next with competing orders that could, in fact, lead their way all the way to the Supreme Court. That's why we wanted to start the program today. With a legal voice here, Scott Lastman joins us, Lastman Law and Policy Founder on the battle over the pill and what might happen next here. Scott, I appreciate your joining us. Do you see this, as many do, as one that will quickly arrive in the Supreme Court? Uh, yeah, I think it will. I, I'm, I'm hoping it will. Tell me why. Well, I, I think the uh, Texas uh, court opinion is deeply, deeply flawed. Uh, I'd put it on par with the... Um, decision a couple of months ago by Judge Aileen Cannon down in Florida that was uh, quickly and thoroughly uh, reversed by the 11th Circuit. And I'm hoping that uh, the Fifth Circuit plays that role here. And if not the Fifth Circuit, then hopefully the Supreme Court. But uh, Mm -hmm. uh, in in my estimation, the two decisions are uh, on par and uh, deeply, deeply flawed. People saw this, or at least questioned uh, this first ruling from Texas uh, because it seemed to come out of the blue. I don't know if you see it that way, Scott, but what prompted the judge in Texas to even go here? Uh, I don't think people thought it was out of the blue. I I think um, folks were expecting the judge to rule the way he did in Texas, um, uh, and primarily because uh, the the judge was handpicked by these plaintiffs precisely because there was a feeling that uh, ideologically he would uh, rule the way he did. Uh, the timing might have been, um, you know, a little little questionable, and people right. might not have been expecting it to be issued when it was, but I, I don't think the substance of it was subject to much uh, debate. Yeah, well, but in terms of the substance, though, I mean, there was no new science. There was nothing actually changed uh, to bring about a ruling like this, this is a drug that has been in use for years. So maybe I should rephrase the question that way. For a casual uh, viewer here, does this have anything to do with, with more than politics? Is there a scientific reason for it? It doesn't appear that there is any scientific reason for this. Um, it looks like it's a completely ideological um, decision that's very, very loosely based on the law, uh, in fact, um, and, and loosely based on the science. I think one of the um, biggest problems with it is uh, uh, the, the judge seemed to uh, ignore FDA scientific expertise. Um, judges uh, reviewing FDA's decisions typically defer to FDA because mm-hmm. FDA is the scientific and medical expert. Judges are not. 
Um, but this judge uh, took it upon himself to second-guess FDA scientific and medical judgments. Um, and, and that, you know, quite frankly, is shocking. But, uh, again, the, the feeling was that uh, if any judge was going to do it, it would be this judge, and that's why the plaintiffs uh, uh, chose to file the lawsuit where they did. So there are questions about next steps. As I mentioned, the attorney general has already appealed uh, the Texas ruling. Uh, we could learn a lot, I suspect, in the next seven days. I, I don't know if you agree with that, but there's there's a, a question as to whether anything should be done at all. The congresswoman from New York, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, suggesting uh, over the weekend that the, the administration simply ignore the ruling and just go on with things here. I don't know if that's even possible, but the secretary of Health and Human Services, uh, Javier Becerra, was asked about it on CNN. But are, are you taking it off the table that uh, you will recommend the FDA ignore a ban? Everything is on the table. The president said that way back when the Dobbs decision came out. Every option is on the table. So, Scott Lastman, what would that look like? How does the administration potentially ignore this? Or do you don't you don't see that being in the cards? No, I think it is in the cards. And it, I actually think it's required by the Washington state uh, case. Uh, as you know, that that court enjoined FDA from taking any actions that would limit uh, the availability of mifepristone mm-hmm. in the 18 states that brought the case. Right. Um, and so I think because of that, uh, FDA really is not allowed to take any actions that would implement the Texas judge's decision. Um, now, the Texas decision is interesting in that it's self-executing. Uh, that is, whether or not FDA does anything uh, doesn't really matter. The, the court um, order stays the approval. And so I think if and when it goes into effect uh, after the seven days, um, the, the drug will be considered unapproved. But uh, FDA can and should ignore that, and as I said, is, is likely required to ignore the unapproved status uh, in, in the sense that, you know, typically when a, when a drug is withdrawn, FDA will remove it from its official list of approved drugs. Right. I think FDA should ignore it and not remove it from that list. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes they'll take enforcement action uh, against companies that distribute unapproved drugs. And again, I think FDA can and should, and because of the Washington State case, is required to not take any enforcement action. Wow. So, um, so in the case of competing rulings like this, though, the administration can essentially, what you're saying, uh, choose to pay attention to one and not the other. Uh, they they can. Uh, in this case, I'm not sure they have to make the choice because huh. uh, the uh, Texas case, as far as I can see, doesn't require FDA to do anything. Um, it just basically declares that the drug is unapproved. Um, now, it would be different if, if the, the, the Texas judge had said, uh, I'm ordering FDA to withdraw approval of the drug mm-hmm. or suspend approval of the drug. And in fact, he said, if uh, if I couldn't uh, do this unilaterally, that's what I would do. I would order FDA uh, to withdraw approval. But as I read the Texas case, he's really um, removing uh, th- the judge himself is declaring that the, the drug is not approved anymore. And that doesn't require FDA to do anything. Got it. Scott, how quickly could this go to the Supreme Court? Uh, you know, that I don't know. Um, hopefully within a matter of months. Um, yeah, I, I mean, hopefully we'll get a quick ruling. I think the first thing we'll, we'll want to look at is does the fifth circuit, uh, extend the stay of the Texas judge's order? And we should see that, uh, within the next week. Um, and, um, if so, I think that'll be a good sign. Scott, appreciate your joining us. Scott Lastman at Lastman Law and Policy. He's the founder, starting us off here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. As we assembled our panel, I'm sure that Rick and Jeannie both have some pretty well-thought-out positions on this, having had a few days to marinate. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors, our signature panel. Jeannie, uh, this is uh, this is a heck of a story here, and, and the, to think of yet another Massive national controversy coinciding with an election cycle like the one that we're in, knowing the fallout from Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court. It does make you wonder what if we're headed for part two. 
I, I think we are. I think there's no question at this point that abortion is going to be on the ballot again across the country in 2024, which, as the Wall Street Journal warned Republicans today and over the weekend, this is to your political disadvantage. Get your views on abortion clear, because what we've seen here is a call for decades to overturn Roe and return the decision to the states. And now you have swooping in here a federal judge who is now trying to nationalize it again as a result of this this filing by these abortion or anti-abortion um, these uh, anti-abortion plaintiffs and that's precisely against what they were arguing for in the Dobbs case so it's a real conundrum politically for uh, you know Republicans but of course it's a real challenge for women and women's health my students were not alive when this drug was approved Bill Clinton was president this has been their entire lives it doesn't matter if you're pro-choice or pro-life this raises enormous uncertainty about women's health and and that is a problem. Rick, there's a lot we could talk about here. Just to start with the basics, do you see this becoming a, a Supreme Court case? Uh, yeah, I, I would assume it, it probably would be. I mean, I, I would hope it wouldn't be. I mean, the Supreme Court's kind of botched up this abortion situation in the United States, uh, certainly has hurt Republicans and helped Democrats in the last you know, election cycle. Yeah. And maybe keeping them out of this would be the best possible strategy for those people litigating this issue. Um, you know, it, and it t portends a much broader issue. I mean, the Supreme Court gets involved in this. Uh, it could literally dramatically undermine the FDA approval process. So true. everybody who's got drugs in the pipeline will look at this and say, gee, maybe maybe I got to go to the courts to get my drugs approved, not FDA. So uh, I, I think this has great potential for disaster. And, and frankly, I would hope that the Supreme Court wouldn't take it on and would 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 just you know force the, the appellate courts to deal with this. Is there a chance it ends that way, Jeannie? Uh, I doubt it. I, I do think we'll see a stay of the Texas judge's order in the Fifth Circuit. But when you have competing rulings like this, conflicting rulings, the Supreme Court very well may have to step in. And of course, I think there is a good chance that they are going to reject what the Texas judge has done. At least I hope they will, because as Rick just talked about, this impacts not just this drug, but every single drug that the FDA has approved. We are all now at the mercy, apparently, if this was to go through, of a federal judge's will without any scientific background and the ability to overturn an FDA approval. That is a scary position. I can't imagine even conservatives on the Supreme Court would abide by that. Yeah. Politically speaking here, Rick, if you're a Republican heading into this election cycle, maybe we'll take Donald Trump out of this for a second, uh, considering the House, the Senate, gubernatorial elections and so forth. Uh, is the Wall Street Journal correct? It's time to get the narrative straight? Yeah, I, I think this is really uh, starting to uh, bollocks up uh, the American public. They don't know uh, really what position they're in. You know, obviously the Supreme Court ruling on Dobbs has unlocked all the state action, uh, and you're going to have a patchwork uh, quilt of laws that nobody's really going to understand how to abide by. We see uh, reports uh, that doctors are leaving states that are banning abortion, bear fear that they're going to have their practice attacked by the courts. Uh, I mean, it's it's really a dislocation of healthcare that's that's happening that has, in some cases, absolutely nothing to do with abortion. And so, uh, I, I think these lawmakers have got to take a step backwards and really start to consider the secondary effects of the decisions that they're out there trying to make, whether it's in the state legislatures that are active in this area or in the courts. Let's add Trump back into it now. He's going to give a full-throated uh, voice of support to this issue going forward, right? Is that something you can assume? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, he's trying to shore up his uh, evangelical, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, anti-abortion uh, uh, credentials. He's got a lot of other people now running against him who, frankly, have a better track record, including his vice president, um, you know, who uh, is really connected to this issue and to, to these communities. And and so he, he, I, I promise you, if, 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 if it won't surprise anybody, that you know, Donald Trump will probably demagogue this issue as quickly as he possibly yeah. can. And, Remember the warnings, though, before the Dobbs decision, Jeannie, when he was speaking privately, and this is based on reports, to see, he called it stupid. He said that this is how Republicans are going to lose suburban female voters. 
Is he still right about that? He is a thousand percent right on that. And I don't say that a lot. You know, this is a case of incredible overreach and an inability of Republicans in the pro-life community to take a win. And they're allowing the entire party to be labeled as extreme on this and so many issues in the last few days, let alone the last few months. That is great news for the Democrats and Biden. It is horrible news for the GOP. And they just can't seem to get their act together conservative and liberal young people and people across the board do not want federal judges telling them what their pharmaceutical situation and their health care should be like. So what will be the Republican position on this, Rick? Well, I think Republicans are going to get jammed on this. Um, you know, they're going to be all kinds of uh, sort of litmus tests now being given as to, you know, how it used to be how many weeks you know, um, before you uh, oppose abortion, uh, the you know that women are pregnant, and and now you're going to have to have an, uh, a legal abacus next to your bed to figure out how to answer simple questions. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight: athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen: the lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. It's now a criminal investigation. The Justice Department looking into the leak of highly classified documents from the Pentagon, revealing how the U.S. spies on other countries and including our military's assessment of weaknesses in Ukraine's military, suggesting that time may well be on Russia's side. The Pentagon has started an interagency assessment. Let's get into this for a moment before we hear from our panel on this with Larry Lieber, Bloomberg's national security editor. Larry, thanks for joining us. These documents have been popping up on social media. Does anyone think we get to the bottom of the leak? Well, they're certainly trying. The Justice Department is working on it. The Pentagon is doing an internal assessment, and they're not playing it down. Uh, I just uh, moved a story from our reporters updating that a Pentagon spokesman said highly sensitive classified information that poses a very serious risk to national security was made public in this uh, leak of documents. Uh, So he he said that the U.S. is also uh, engaged at high levels, as he put it, with allies on the leak, because there may not be a lot here that the allies don't already know, Mm -hmm. except it's sure embarrassing to have the indication in these files that the U.S., uh, as a matter of course, spies on it. Uh, allies and friends and Ukraine. (laughs) So what's the bigger concern here, kind of revealing how we go about doing business or or compromising potentially Ukraine's effort to fend off an invasion from Russia? I think the most significant is the uh, Ukraine material, where there was a very blunt assessment uh, that Ukraine's ability, which has been substantial so far, but the uh, Ukraine's ability particularly to hold off Russia's uh, air attacks uh, may be very limited. Their ability to do so, their um, the weapons they have uh, may not withstand uh, a new round of Russian uh, air attacks. Now, they've done well so far, probably because the Russians haven't been eager to put their uh, air force, uh, air forces, uh, dro- everything except drones, uh, on high alert and at risk. Uh, but that could change. And, and for the U.S. to uh, have uh, admitted that in public, thanks to whoever leaked these documents and, and uh, published them, uh, is a very uh, 
embarrassing and troubling uh, assessment on the situation in Ukraine. We understand these, uh, many of these at least documents were being prepared uh, for General Mark Milley. We haven't heard from him on this, have we? I, I suspect he's livid about it. No, we haven't. And I, I'm not sure that's entirely the problem here. And the one I think they're going to look into in the future is this yeah. was distributed very, whoever it was like initially prepared for, it was distributed widely yeah. to folks who have uh, a classified designation. And when you have this kind of material, you really have to wonder uh, if this will uh, produce uh, a more limited distribution list of internal information, internal assessments uh, that would take greater um, care with not only the facts, but also uh, the political implications if it gets out. Got it. Larry, great to talk to you. Come back on soon. Larry Lieber, Bloomberg News National Security Editor. This is the that's that's the last line of defense, Larry Lieber, before the story hits the terminal that you're reading. And we get analysis from our panel, Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Uh, not a good look here, Rick. I wonder if it actually compromises very much here. Larry seems to think the the allies already knew about most of this. But I wouldn't want to be Ukraine reading these documents. Well, Ukraine uh, has taken a position that this is just a Russian disinformation campaign, so that's sort of their line, and they're sticking to it. But I'm more worried about what Russia learns from this. I mean, our allies are in for a penny, in for a pound. They'll be on our side. But uh, are we, you know, giving up any sources and methods of intelligence collection by airing out, you know, the the outcomes of that of that intelligence collection? And and that would worry me because then that that could wind up we could lose channels of intelligence that otherwise have been very fruitful and helpful to us. And so um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really divided. I've I talked to a number of people in the service right now, you know, today, and there's an attitude that's brewing that there are people on the inside of the Pentagon who don't like the way the war is being managed in Ukraine. And, and, and somebody uh, 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 might have, you know, been going after uh, their effort to try and upset uh, public support for this for this uh, uh, conflict. Uh, so, I mean, if that's the case, yeah, we we have issues inside the Defense Department that that need to be dealt with. Yeah, what's what's a bigger concern then here, Jeannie? A, a mole inside the Pentagon or Russian disinformation being presented as authentic Pentagon documents? Yeah, I, I mean, it's hard to choose. I, I would go with the mole by a hair, but, you know, they're both equally troubling. And, you know, there are so many questions that have been raised by this. I mean, as we look back at the last few times when the United States has experienced this, it was usually ideologically motivated. People in the U.S. wanting to reveal what mm-hmm. the United States had done wrong, sort of transgressions of the country. In this case, to dump these on Discord, my sons use Discord. This is a gaming platform. And, you know, you're hearing that maybe this wasn't ideologically motivated at all, but nobody can seem to sort of figure out what the motivation could be. Rick just alluded to one, which is very important, could be politically motivated. I'm not sure why it goes on a gaming platform on Discord, but it did find its way out. So it's absolutely possible. But all of that is troubling. And then you look at the politics of this, uh, you know, Talking about the, you know, support for the war, these documents show that except for, you know, pulling the trigger and giving them certain weapons that can reach deep into Russia, the United States is doing just about everything else in this war. So we are intimately involved. If people don't want to use the term proxy war, that's where we are at this point. And these documents prove it. And that could be a real problem for the Biden administration as we move forward. Well, it could. I, and, and I don't know that there's a lot of hope for anyone getting to the bottom of these leaks here, Rick, in this world that we are in. It shows up on a gaming site uh, that that I'm guessing uh, none of us have ever been to, even if they are being used by children in my home and in Jeannie's home. Uh, chasing down the source of this could be impossible, no? Sure. I mean, it's going to be very difficult. Uh, it, you know, someone took pictures of documents that have been folded up, and, mm-hmm. and so there's a trail to follow. Uh, and you would hope uh, that we keep learning our lesson about, you know, control of, uh, of of classified information. We've just had a whole year of talking about this stuff floating around people's, you know, hotels and, and studies. Yeah, uh, so uh, it keeps the eye, uh, keeps the light on uh, the weaknesses that we have with control of our cl- most classified information. Uh, I wouldn't worry so much about where it shows up. I mean, smart people know how to put this stuff out and yeah. uh, and, and keep their fingerprints off of it. 
going to have to start looking at these gaming sites a little more often here, Jeannie. There might be news. Uh, Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis, our panel here on a Monday. Many thanks to both of you. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington, along with Kaylee Lines, back from the long weekend with, frankly, the same story we were talking about last week. Of course, the meeting with Speaker McCarthy and the president of Taiwan led us to run the headline on Thursday that it was a muted reaction. We yeah. saw they were kind of playing around with the carrier group, but didn't really go too close to the island. Nothing like last time, they said, with Nancy Pelosi. Now we've got the equivalent of another blockade. Yeah, essentially. Taiwan's foreign minister saying in an interview with Bloomberg today that if you look at the intensity of their air and naval threats against Taiwan, that it's similar to what we saw at the time of Pelosi's visit. Sure so essentially, is. China, while it may have seemed to be a more measured response in the immediate aftermath, seriously ramped things up in the days that followed. You wonder where we're going from here and joining us to talk about this and a series of other issues. This is what happens, I guess, when you have a three-day weekend. Yeah. Uh, Mick Mulvaney is with us, the former acting White House chief of staff under President Trump, former OMB director, former congressman. Mick, it's great to have you. Uh, we were talking boy who cried wolf last week with these big responses that kind of lead to nothing. Is that what we're seeing here from China? No, I think you're seeing, you know, about what we expected, maybe a few days later than we expected, but they were not happy with McCarthy uh, meeting with the president, just like they weren't happy with Pelosi doing it previously. So I I don't think it surprises me. I, again, I'm I'm sort of out of, in fact, I'm absolutely out of the inner circles right now. So I, I can't imagine it would surprise anybody else who has better information than I do. Are you surprised, though, by how the U.S. policy around Taiwan seems to be shifting in some way? I mean, does the one policy, one China policy still stand as we continually are meeting with the Taiwanese leader? Well, formally, it does. And keep in mind, I don't think it's any part of the the one China policy that would prevent those sorts of meetings, right? Uh, At the same time, uh, your your question is the right one, Kaylee, which is, uh, is the attitude changing? And it seems like it is. Keep in mind, we don't have a, 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 a treaty with Taiwan. We don't have an agreement to defend them. Um, part of the reason, in fact, a major reason we don't have it is we don't even recognize it as a country. So I think there's a lot of folks, especially, you know, including folks in Washington who think it's, it's a country we recognize, but we don't. So is that changing? Probably, um, as Joe and I have talked about a lot on this program, the attitude towards China is changing across both parties. So it does not surprise me, for example, that Nancy went. It doesn't surprise me that Kevin went. This is hmm. it, it's what you would expect them to do in this environment. A lot of talk about decoupling. Uh, Jay Shambaugh, the Treasury Undersecretary for International Affairs, indeed talking with Bloomberg earlier today, uh, suggesting, no, that's not what we're seeing here. Mick, listen. The U.S. is not seeking to decouple from China. We're not seeking to limit China's growth. You know, those aren't our strategic objectives. We occasionally or, or frequently have issues with different economic policies in China, and we will always defend U.S. economic interests as well. Uh, but we're not in any way trying to separate these two economies entirely. That, that's just neither practical nor in our interest. What is uh, practical or in the interest of Beijing, though? What's, what's yeah. President Xi's uh, thought on decoupling? Yeah, I, I hope that whoever that was, and I don't, I don't know that person, I hope he's not that naive. Um, because clearly what China is intending to do as quickly as possible is, is to decouple. It's one of the reasons you saw them reaching out to Macron over the weekend. They've yeah. seen what has happened to Russia um, and the power, the economic control that the West, or at least influence uh, that the West has over Russia. They don't like that. They don't want to be subject to the same sort of weaknesses that Russia does, and they're going to try and decouple first from the U.S. and eventually from the West. Um, and if anybody, you know, is, is not acknowledging that, then they've got their head in the sand. So I'm not saying we should be actively running towards decoupling, but we need to recognize um, China's certainly interested in doing that. And there's certainly some part of our interest that needs to keep those sorts of options on the table. I'm glad you mentioned Macron, Mick, because the president of France made quite a bit of noise uh, over the weekend in geopolitical circles with an interview he conducted with a few journalists in which he said, quote, the question Europeans need to answer is, is it in our interest to accelerate a crisis on Taiwan? No. He goes on to say that we Europeans must, it would be the worst thing to think that we Europeans must become followers on this topic and take our cue from the U.S. agenda and a Chinese overreaction. Is the U.S. alone in this conflict, do you think, Mick? 
No, absolutely not. Uh, and the, and while I, I, I understand what, what Macron is saying, I understand why he went. I'm not even sure he speaks for all of France, let alone for all of Europe. Um, mm. So he's trying very hard, I think, as his role. He's in, a, he's in a declining economy. He's in a declining country. He's trying to maintain relevance. And I get that. I'd be doing the same thing if I were in his shoes. But to come out and say, look, China's on one side and America's on the other, and Europe is sort of this honest broker in the middle – um, is it, sort of absurd. That, that's, I don't think anybody sees it that way. Uh, the French just don't have that type of that type of pull. Again, even within their own country, let alone within Europe. So, look, he, he's got to do what he's got to do. They, uh, I think, it was over there to announce Airbus uh, doubling the production of the Tianjin uh, facility, which I, I get all of that. But no, and when, when I see Emmanuel Macron on there cuddling up to China, it, it doesn't make me sort of you know clutch at my pearls and go, oh no, you know, France is going to go over to the other side. I, I just don't see that happening. Uh, Chairman McCall led a delegation to Taiwan over the weekend, the House uh, Foreign Affairs Committee. Michael McCall suggesting that this blockade, if we can call it, that is also a response to the trip. Do you see that being true, Mick, or was, would this have happened either way? Do, do members of Congress get this treatment every time they go overseas? Yeah, we do. In fact, I remember talking to Mike Pompeo when I was in the Office of Management Budget about whether or not I should go or he should go or what the deal was. It's a very delicate situation. Of course, our strategic ambiguity is is right. I saw Mike a call over the weekend and you know everybody said well he was calling for invasion no he wasn't what he was saying is that he wasn't he would rule out military action which is exactly the position that we've taken as a government now for quite some time again we're not saying we're in we're not saying we're out um it's one of those all options on the table and i think that mm-hmm. sort of ambiguity has served as well so no i think i think mike did a nice job doesn't surprise me that he's over there again this is part of the the, the chilling of the relationship between China uh, and the U.S., and I would expect more visits from other high-ranking folks on um, both sides of Taiwan and U.S. Uh, in the near future. All right. Well, Mick, while we continue to keep one eye on the geopolitics, we also have our eye on, on domestic issues here at home, because over the weekend, of course, we had these competing rulings regarding ab- access to abortion pills here in the U.S. The Biden DOJ has just filed an appeal of that uh, Texas ruling in particular, which, of course, competes with the other out of Washington. All of this just adding fuel to the conversation around this very hot button social issue that seems and tell me if you disagree with this to be a losing one for Republican candidates. We saw that with the midterms. We saw it in Wisconsin just last week. How much is the abortion issue going to plague the GOP, Mick? Yeah, I think any time you look at it, uh, any election as sort of a single issue, you sort of oversimplify. Uh, so it's, I don't think it's fair to say that, you know, elect, uh, abortion costs them seats. But absolutely, I think you're correct um, if you're suggesting this was a bigger issue than Republicans had expected and a bigger issue working against them than Republicans had expected. Um, look, I happen to think the decision by the Supreme Court was, was judicially the exact correct one. But I think my party sort of got caught flat-footed realizing that, the you know the movement to ban abortion absolutely nationwide is something that is probably not supported by a majority of the population. So to the extent it does become an issue, it will continue to sort of plague Republicans as they have to figure out a way to explain why they are pro-life. I am, um, but I'm also not running for office. So I'm not exactly the target office, target audience here. So yeah, it's going to be a challenge for them. I think it's one of the reasons you're seeing. Um, that Republicans focus instead on things like LGBTQ issues, education, and so forth, because those are the social issues um, that they have and can turn to their advantage. Based on what we saw, though, in Wisconsin, you dial back a little bit to Kansas, add Michigan, now this. It's it's an issue that Republicans will not likely be able to hide from in 24, Mick. How does the party position itself for this? Yeah, they have to go and have the debate. Listen, we asked for 50 years for the debate. For 50 years, Republicans said, look, we think it should be left to the states. Okay, now it's left to the states and we have to be able to make that case as to why we think life begins at at, at conception, why we think there shouldn't be or should be exceptions, depending on how you you approach it. It's almost as if we thought that the battle would be over if we wanted the Supreme Court. And the truth of the matter is it just started. So, yeah, I, I happen to think. I, I welcome the debate, and even even the states that vote against how I would vote, um, mm. I, I applaud because I think it's the it's the national debate that Roe versus Wade prevented us from having. So in a roundabout sort of way, I think it's good for the country. It's just right now my party's not really ready to to message it very well. Well, and let's talk about uh, one candidate for your party in particular as he seeks the 2024 nomination. Where do you think your former boss, former President Trump, actually stands on this topic? Because it hasn't been much from him on this. It's been kind of silent. 
Yeah, you know, it's a really good question, probably a longer one that we want to get into here. The short answer is this, is that I think that the president became more pro-life the, more, the longer he was in office and the longer he realized what the real radical left attitude is towards abortion. I remember the Governor Northrum comments about, you know, delivering a baby, keeping it warm and killing it. And that had a dramatic effect on President Trump. He did not realize that was how aggressive the pro-abortion side of the argument was. And I think he he sort of became more pro-life while he was office. I also think he's probably more towards um, you know, banning it, not allowing abortion to, indiscriminately, but allowing certain exceptions. I think that's probably where he is individually. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, is, Mick, we heard reporting. It, I feel like it was the Wall Street Journal when, uh, in, in advance of the Dobbs ruling when he, he called it stupid. He said that this is how Republicans will lose suburban women. Does he not believe that, too? Well, I mean, you know, my former boss has got a lot of different ways to lose suburban women. Uh, one of them is, you know, That's having true. dinner with white supremacists and so forth. So mm-hmm. there's no shortage of, of that. Point but yeah, stars. I think I, I think he sort of hit the hit the nail on the on the head, which is, you know, we we, we won the battle and lost the war, right? Or at least losing the war. I, I don't think he's wrong about that. It would be curious to see, you know, if he does. He he ran as a as very pro life. He certainly governed as very pro life. There's no question. No more pro-life president probably in history when it comes to policy be curious to see if he stays that way as he moves into 2024 it's a delicate balancing act for him because the the pro-life um you know uh, christian wing of the party um was firmly for donald trump and he wants to count on them again next time around and as we look at the former president and the way in which he has dominated the news cycle over the last uh, several weeks, even as other candidates have thrown their hat into the ring for the Republican nomination in 2024 to not much uh, fanfare or even really acknowledgement uh, that that was happening. How long do you think he can maintain this hold on all the oxygen around the Republican Party and how much is that to the detriment of others in it? Well, I mean, certainly he's a master at controlling the oxygen in the room. He's a master showman, there's no question, and that he is just absolute catnip for most of the media. And if you've got a, you know, if you're a Republican challenger, not only are you struggling to try and get attention, you're struggling to try and get some distance, some differentiation, because your first, you know, the first three questions that someone is going to ask you is not going to be about your policy towards Taiwan. It's going to be, what do you think about Trump? Mm. So even if they're talking to you know, Mike Pence, it's the first three questions would be about the other side. And you might have to come to his defense, uh, including on things like the Manhattan DA indictment last week. So it's really hard to get that distance. Uh, it's going to be a challenge. There's no question. I think there's probably only two or three that are really um, get a chance to challenge Trump. I think Ron DeSantis certainly does. I think Tim Scott, a name you haven't heard much recently, but uh, yeah. it looks like he's moving towards running. Those are the, they're, they're, DeSantis is so similar to Trump um, in some ways that he's got a chance, and Tim Scott is so much different than, Tim, than Trump mm-hmm. in other ways. I think he's got, a, he's got an excellent chance as well. But we'll see as that plays out over the, the spring. The travel summer. plans would certainly make you think that. Uh, what happens, though, Mick, if, if Ron DeSantis signs, as promised, uh, a six-week abortion ban in Florida? Does that help him in this contest? You know, it's a really good question. I I, I don't know. I I think if his attitude is, it it depends on how he messages, right? If he says, look, we have the most Republican legislature in the country. Um, We're the most Republican state. You all know we're good conservatives. This is where the population was. This is where the public is. I think you could sell that. Um, to folks like me, I mean, again, I'm 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 devoutly Catholic. I, b- I believe life begins at, at conception. But if you came to me and said, "Look, um, this is the government stepping in and saying what we're doing," I, I I could that would not cross you off of my list. So, I, I, if your question is this, if he signs a six-week bill in Florida, is he done? Absolutely not. I just think it depends on how he handles it and um, how it's received. Great to talk with you, Mick. Thanks for coming in. We'll talk to you in a week. Mick Mulvaney joins us each week at this time on Bloomberg Radio, former acting White House chief of staff under President Trump, currently co-chair at Actum Global Consultants. And, and you know, he says he's not on the inside circle. We know otherwise, Kaylee. It's actually a pretty great way to get a sense of where the pulse is in the Republican electorate when we try to figure out stories like these. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 
5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. So Nancy Pelosi's visit was the dress rehearsal, and I guess this is the sequel. I'm Joe Matthew with Kaylee Lines here on The Fastest Show in Politics. And Kaylee, we've had an eye, as we just discussed with Mick Mulvaney, on what's happening in the waters off Taiwan. Uh, it's almost a week old now, the day that mm-hmm. Speaker McCarthy met with President Tsai, and there was this sort of delayed reaction. People thought, well, maybe they're not as upset. Maybe we're normalizing yeah. congressional codels to Taiwan, but no such thing. Major drills extending into a second day now looks just like when Nancy Pelosi went. Yeah, and the People's Liberation Army in China saying that it stands ready to fight at any time okay. and crush separatism activities mm. and foreign interference. We've always gotten the strong language from China on yeah. this issue, Joe. We thought maybe just talk is all it was last week, but mm-hmm. it seems like they are backing it up with this posturing. It sure does. Uh, that's why we wanted to talk to Amy Selico, Albright Stonebridge Group principal on this matter. Amy, it's uh, great to have you with us here when you Take a look at what's going on in the waters around Taiwan. Uh, is this going to be like the last time, or does it become more dangerous each time? Well, thanks for having me. Great to be with you both. I do think what we're seeing is China trying to calibrate its reaction, just like the U.S. is trying to calibrate its engagements with Taiwan so that we're not really escalating beyond control. Uh, so while I agree with you, this is very nerve-wracking to watch what's happening, these war games around Taiwan. I think if we compared it to last summer, after Speaker Pelosi visited, yeah. it's not as intensive. I don't want to diminish how significant it is. Not as intensive as last summer's uh, exercises, I think. Okay, Amy, you, you just said that the U.S. is really trying to calibrate its its activity and position around Taiwan, how it meets uh, with President Tsai. And yet we continue to see these meetings taking place. Two speakers of the House, different congressional delegations making the trip to Taiwan. Doesn't the U.S. knowingly add fuel to the fire with each one of these meetings? And then what's the end goal? Well, I think, uh, Kaylee, that the challenge for the administration is they don't control Congress, nor do they pretend to. Mm. And uh, when the Chinese are so angry about Codell's going to Taiwan or um, or during Tsai Ing-wen's transit to the United States, of course, meeting with Speaker McCarthy and a number of other members of Congress, you know, the administration um, says Congress has every right to... Uh, to meet with with um, foreign leaders and doesn't try to pretend that they're controlling Congress over mm-hmm. Taiwan policy. However, I do think the administration is quite careful not to add fuel to the fire in these moments. It's interesting uh, that you suggest, Amy, that this is not quite as bad as last time or when Nancy Pelosi went. I just want to quantify uh, the difference here, because Taiwan's defense ministry says it detected 70 aircraft and 11 warships near Taiwan, 35 of the warplanes crossing the median line, and they did include mm-hmm. uh, the J-15s that are carrier-based fighter jets. Are you speaking in terms of, of actual hardware or just sort of the, the emotion and the, the, that surrounded the event when Nancy Pelosi went? Yeah, I want to be very careful in not suggesting that this isn't highly provocative by Beijing. Mm -hmm. However, when you think about last summer, when there were missiles flying over Taiwan, some of which landed in Japanese waters, uh, uh, this this has not been as aggressive. Now, the symbolism is equally disturbing, right? They are preparing an aerial blockade, you know, doing... 
uh, doing drills that simulate an invasion of the island using an aircraft carrier, one of China's two domestically made aircraft carriers in the region. So highly provocative. Mm -hmm. I just Mm -hmm. think when we look at compared with last summer, it wasn't a step even further into new provocations. It was Mm -hmm. just very provocative, very worrying. And what's most worrying about it, frankly, is the potential for an accident. And then what happens in that case, you know, and into any kind of accident could truly spiral out of control. Well, and in the event of an accident or or some other cause that would bring the U.S. or other countries into it as well, there's a question of what that would look like, considering it was not just the meeting between McCarthy and Tsai last week that was happening. There was also a meeting in Beijing with European leaders where afterward Emmanuel Macron really cast a lot of doubt on, on the alignment of Europe and the U.S. on the Taiwan issue. So if and when this tension escalates even further, is the U.S. alone, or does it have the buy-in of the rest of the West? Mm. Great, uh, great question. I think that the Macron visit, and of course he was accompanied by the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, but Macron got a kind of top billing and a, a much warmer welcome because von der Leyen had been so critical of Beijing in a speech she made last week prior to traveling to China. You know, Macron's comments on um, on Europe needing to maintain strategic autonomy uh, have been widely criticized by many in Europe and the United States in this moment where we are seeing China behaving so provocatively. But to get to your point, you know, those military exercises didn't start until after Macron had left China. Mm. Uh, and, and so just just ended hours ago. Um, this this round of military exercises. But the Japanese are quite engaged, along with the United States and others, in watching how these military exercises are taking place. And I do, do think there's very, very, it's very, very difficult for me to see a, a bright spot or any point of optimism here. However, the Japanese and the Chinese have been talking about reinstating Um, you know, hotlines, mill-to-mill communication in a way that the U.S. and China have not been effective. So at least it's constructive. The Japanese and the Chinese are talking uh, about military-to-military contact because, of course, Japan is very involved in the region as well. Amy, Congressman Michael McCall, who's in Taipei uh, with his own delegation Mm -hmm. over the weekend, House Foreign Affairs Committee Chair, Uh, talked about the sale of weapons to Taiwan. This is uh, a big part of their conversation, of course, when he met with President Tsai and said that Congress is doing everything it can to speed up arms sales to Taiwan. Quote, we will provide training for your military, not for war, but for peace, unquote. Beijing, I'm guessing, doesn't see it that way. No, Beijing sees this as meddling, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, they always have. But we, uh, the U.S. government, at least has been consistent Uh, for decades in saying that while we have a diplomatic relationship with Beijing and not with Taiwan, we have legislation that continues to allow the U.S. to sell uh, Taiwan arms in order to for Taiwan to provide for its own defense. Now, whether the United States would come to the aid uh, of Taiwan in a military conflict with China, I think really depends on how that conflict is started. Mm-hmm. But I think that uh, Congressman McCall's statements were wholly consistent with a bipartisan support within Congress to make sure that Taiwan has access to the arms it needs to become a porcupine, right? Um, mm-hmm. Something that can defend itself against an increasingly assertive and aggressive Chinese military. Well, and of course, the tensions between the U.S. and China don't just emanate from the Taiwan issue, although that is a large one. There are also wider questions around national and data security and and the auditing of Chinese companies that are listed here in the U.S. I mean, the list goes on and on of things we've had to cover here at Bloomberg over the last several years just really feels like things uh, have escalated in terms of the tension in this relationship. Is, are we witnessing the decoupling of these two largest economies? Officials within uh, the U.S. government that Bloomberg has spoken to suggested, no, that's not the policy. And yet, is that really what is happening? 
I think that um, I don't like using the term decoupling either. I mean, we did see record trade between the U.S. and China in 2022. However, we absolutely are putting more and more barriers on different what we term um, sensitive areas of trade, anything that's national security related and restricting those kinds of areas of trade and investment is becoming more and more extensive, not just on the U.S. side. Beijing's doing the same thing, and it's national security-based um, investigation into Micron in China that it launched uh, a week ago Friday is another example of that, of China, too, relying on national security reasons to investigate and potentially constrain uh, U.S. investment in China if they think it's bad for China. We're doing the same thing. And so if I'm going to use that that D word I don't like so much, I would say selective decoupling absolutely <laughs> is happening between the two economies, right? Got it. Amy, thanks for talking with us. Amy Selico, uh, principal at Albright Stonebridge Group. Selective decoupling, mm. not to be confused with conscious decoupling. <laughs> I have to just. Where's Gwyneth Paltrow when you need her? Exactly. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Beautiful day here in Washington. We're in the mid-60s. A couple of cherry blossoms left on the trees and the Easter egg roll. As we step onto the south lawn of the White House together here, a beautiful day for it. As President Biden mingles, the kids roll the Easter eggs. We do this whole thing every year here, and it's just a reminder that winter is behind us and we're on to better days. The president did speak today uh, at the Easter egg roll from the balcony. We'll play that for you and give you a little bit of a walk through Easter egg rolls past with something maybe not so controversial to talk about to end this hour on Bloomberg Sound On. Ladies and gentlemen, what I see looking across the South Lawn is a country made up of possibilities. Anything's possible, America. Remember who we are, and we do it together. So have a wonderful, wonderful time here at the People's House. God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Happy Easter. Who's read the Where the Wild Things Are? It's a classic. It's a classic. All right. Everybody ready? Do you know that since 1878, presidents have hosted this event, and it is our honor to continue this tradition. His mother called him Wild Thing, and Max said, I'll eat you up. So he was sent to bed without eating any supper. The first president who did so was a guy named Rutherford B. Hayes. He decided to have the Easter egg roll here at the White House because the members of the United States Congress said you couldn't be, they wouldn't want to host the Easter egg roll anymore on the congressional grounds. That very night in Max's room, a forest group. Just to show you we don't hold a grudge, we've invited members of the U.S. Congress here and you're welcome and thank you all for coming. The wild things roar, their terrible roars. Let's hear your roars. And they gnash their terrible teeth, gnash their teeth. This is 141 years that we've been doing this. I don't remember the first one, but the last three years we've had an awfully good time. You guys, you guys were great wild things. Congratulations. But just remember when your mom tells you to do something, do it. This is Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cutter